This will be the first ever podcast edition. You can Ooh. find it on Cloud. Um, so this is Sometimes Baseball. And with that, I started this just to have some fun with it, see where it goes. Um, but uh, I believe everyone has some sort of connection to the game. And with that, I have brought in my good friend, Kerry Jarvie, with the umlaut over the A. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but so first off, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. The weather cooperated all day yesterday. It was supposed to rain, but I got to get some sun. So I'm feeling good. There you go. Yeah. So how are you staying busy? Um, work hasn't really stopped. I, I already had an overloaded schedule. So dialing back, turn it to like a regular work schedule. So that helps. Yeah. Um, uh otherwise our recent uh my fiance your sister uh our recent di deep dive has been um love is blind on netflix so that has been our our wormhole of uh watching watching a car crash of relationships happen all at once so yeah yeah i uh i somehow got roped into that show um <laughs> It was, uh, yeah, it's definitely interesting. There's the drama keeps you there, I think. Um, I, 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 yeah, the drama keeps you there, but man, it is like, I, I'm, I'm watching it, and like, I know you're, you'll get to it in a second, but like, I'm just watching the psychology of these people. I'm like, man, so many of you could just use a therapist. Like, just, <laughs> just talk to a therapist. Like, figure out what you want. Like, so many, so much of this would go away if you just kind of figured out who you are and what you want. None of them. <laughs> to do that so uh, yeah no, that, that's a i think that really leads into uh just how we're going to start this whole thing so you are studying to be a you are studying clinical psychology um so let's can, can we hear a bit about that yeah. where you're stu studying and like uh how you're going to see yourself doing that in the future Sure thing. Uh, so I am a student at Antioch University, as you said, studying clinical mental health counseling. Um, so I'll be a, a certified mental health professional. Uh, my specialty is in something called play therapy, which is with kids. Uh, yep. The premise being that uh, the last part of the brain to develop is the front part of your brain, which is your language center and your planning center. So uh, asking, I mean, that, that develops when you're like 25 is when it's finally finished developing. So asking little kids to like talk about their feelings is the worst thing you could do because they can't do it right like talking about like tell me about a hard thing the kid's just gonna melt down and not not want to talk to you at all so uh essentially we call it the language of play but if you if you understand how to like follow the kids lead uh in their play and really like let them know that they have the spotlight and almost anything they want to do and they want to show you is okay um, they'll show what's on their mind in, in what they're doing and, and they can kind of process what they're feeling. So that's um, sort of my specialty, but I also do work with uh, teenagers and yeah, teenagers mostly uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons and we teach social skills. A lot of those are like neuro atypical kids like autism spectrum. Um, some of them have like developmental stuff and uh, we use it is a way to play and practice our social skills and how to ask our teammates to help us out. And, uh, you know, I get to do goofy character voices and over the top facial expressions so they can practice reading that stuff. So, it's, yeah. It's <laughs> so you seem to be enjoying it. Um, so what, do you, what does the future look like with that? 
when he finished school? Uh, continuing on with the same work. I finished school uh, in the fall. I'm going to continue doing telehealth, like online therapy. That's how we're doing it now. Uh, a lot of yeah. that turns into teaching the parents how to connect with kids rather than talking to the kids themselves. Oh, interesting. So while, while we're not able to meet in person, that's what it's going to be a lot of. But uh, I look forward to having in-person connections with people again, because that's, uh, that's way more fun. So I think all of us are. Um, <laughs> I think you definitely got that right. Uh, but you said something earlier that I've I'm kind of interested in. So you said like part of our brain doesn't develop until we're 25. Could that be mm -hmm. maybe backdoor reason as to why, like, you know how like athletes hit their peak at like age 25? Is that just because they get a fully developed brain? Like, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that it's like your, like I said, the last part of your brain that develops is your executive functioning, which is like, long-term planning like okay i want to go on a vacation and that means i'm gonna have to save money and that means i'm gonna have to think of ways i'm gonna save you know cut expenditures so that i can save money so that i can do the thing that i want to do right that's long-term yeah. planning that part of your brain is not finished developing until you're 25. uh Interesting. so yeah oh huh. that yeah geez that probably explains why uh <laughs> kids make a lot of dumb mistakes with money <laughs> yeah I, I it's it's all that stuff right it's it's really easy to live in the moment yolo right but that's like it's a you know the the brain is a muscle yeah it's an organ but it, like you have to practice using it and so with the kids i work with you know little little kids we practice like okay what do you want to do oh you want to build the jenga tower all the way to the top great that means we're gonna have to practice you know, building little pieces all the way. And we have to like be patient uh, in, in placing delicately. Um, yeah. And that's, that's their level of, I can long-term plan to build the tower and that's about all I can do. But you gotta practice until, until it comes up. But if you never practice it, if you never have to like sit and focus and practice something, uh, you're not gonna be able to do it when you're older either. Uh, yeah. All right, well, I think uh, that explains psychology far above my, uh my head um and my brain my underdeveloped brain um <laughs> but um so let's uh get into why i wanted you on well part of the reason why i wanted you on um the psychology of baseball and um so as i've come to understand mental coaches are starting to become more and more of a thing what uh what what, what can you tell us about that yeah the most recent reporting i could find on that was from uh article by Bob Nightingale in 2018, but in the spring of 2018, he was reporting that um, across 27 MLB teams, there were 44 mental skills coaches. Uh, in 2011, there were 20 mental skills coaches. So in the last like eight years, it's more than doubled the number. I think the Yankees have five uh, on their own. So it's, it's a branch of coaching that is new, but exploding. Yeah. Yeah. No, like, and I think, uh, it never was in the game before just because it's like people are scared to talk about feelings. Cause like, and I think psycho the field of psychology is definitely exploding now that like people are more, and more comfortable. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's like a huge part of it is, is the stigma tied to it, right? Like people used to think, Oh, I'm seeing a therapist. I'm seeing a psychologist. Like that's for crazy people. That's for like 
something's really wrong with you, something's really messed up in your head, right? But really what it is, is examining yourself, like taking a moment to really reflect and understand like, why do I do the things I do? What, what, you know, what motivates me? How do, how do I get that drive? How do I, you know, maintain passion? How do I keep myself focused when I'm stressed out? Uh, how do I deal with that stress when I'm feeling stressed out? Those are the kinds of things that you can work on with a therapist and, and the kinds of things that these coaches are working on with the players. It's like, you know, you're going to be stressed out after having a bad game, right? And yeah. what can we do about that? You can go punch a hole in the wall and break your hand and then you're going to be on the IL for, you know, the next four weeks. Or we can learn that like a stress ball is a great thing for you. You know, it's going to be different based on each person, but like we're going to work on thinking about how do you get that stress out of you? Where do you put it? Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's how uh, Jonathan Papelbon's uh, unceremonious end came with the Nationals. He punched a, a wall, and he also choked Bryce Harper. But that's beside the point. But, uh, yeah, he was pretty much done with the game with that after that. So maybe he could have used yeah. a psychologist there. <laughs> well, that's a, huge, that's a huge thing that, uh, you know, these, these mental coaches are, are dealing with is the fact that, like, you know, these are professional athletes. There are so many players in the minor leagues and it's so competitive. The question is not talent, right? They, they have the talent, they have the drive. It's what gives you that edge? What gives you the thing that lets you stick in the league that makes it so that you can be a major leaguer for the long haul? Like that 162 game season is not for everyone. It is like, it is absolutely, it wears your brain down as time goes on. And the people who, are not able to be resilient, you know, who haven't, who haven't like built a support system or haven't done the things to like be successful over 162 games and like face that grind, like they're going to flame out where otherwise like they could just as well be a, a pro ball player. They're just as talented, but they, they don't have the mental skills. They haven't built that muscle to, to, to stick with it. Yeah. And I think that's what really separates the game of baseball from other sports is like, Yes, uh, hockey and basketball have around 80 games in a season. I think it's 82. And then, like, and a NFL has uh, 16. But, like, it's a marathon, day in, day out. They play 162. They are working 162 days out of 183. And, like, mm -hmm. you don't ask people to do that. And it can wear on people, especially with the competitive juices flowing. It, mm -hmm. I, I know I couldn't do it probably. <laughs> which I find the beauty in um, <laughs> just seeing that guy in the eighth inning of a start um, in mid July. It's like, why is he out there? It's just competitive. <laughs> but yeah, um, that that's like one of the great things that makes it feel like a testament to their all around athleticism, right? There's so many parts of like, you got to have the hand eye coordination. You got to have the speed. You got to have the strength. You got to have, the endurance, you got to have the mental endurance, you got to have like the, you know, you got to take care of your body in a way that it's going to keep up and not start breaking down at the end of the season, right? It's really like, uh, it's a testament. Yeah. And like, and I think every team has come to that point where it's pretty much they're on like the same plane as to like, what they can do in terms of like, body health, mental health, other than the three teams who are, don't have help, mental health coaches. But I understand you have some thoughts on the game in, t in terms of like how teams are bringing, breaking like the norms to try and gain advantages. Uh, so what thoughts do you have with those? 
Yeah, well, I, when you when you first approached it, you, you mentioned like, just kind of mention like, you know, talk, talk about the influence of the field of psychology in, in baseball and psychology works on an individual level. And then psychology also works on a group think level, right? We, we are, uh, we are social beings and that's, that's kind of how we're, we're built and we read what other people are doing and we want to be doing what other people are doing as a way to know that like, I'm going to survive and I'm going to be all right and things are gonna be okay. And that makes it really hard to break away from trends break away from like what the historic thinking is i mean think like moneyball the oakland a's finally were a team that was like you know maybe you should take a walk like maybe that is helpful right whereas like before taking a walk is like weakness right you're not tough if you take a walk like you're just taking the free pass like you gotta earn your hit you gotta earn that base and it's like it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter like a point's a point and the better way to score points is to have somebody on that on first base and it doesn't matter how they get there um and so that's that's like some of these historical ways of thinking that new cutting edge teams are willing to break away from they're willing to let go of like you know oh our best reliever needs to shut the game down that's not the most important time for them to be out there right it's the it's the bottom of the eighth and you got two three four coming up in the lineup like put your best reliever out there in the eighth. Like, this is the game. Like, this is it right now. Like, don't, don't save them for the closers, the closers, the closer. Like that's, <laughs> that era is long gone. Like John Hader and the Brewers is a great example of like throwing out that old thinking, um, the Rays and using the opener at the beginning of the game. Cause that's like a really high leverage situation, which like gets into statistics, but like, it's a, uh, it's another thing that's like, people wouldn't have done that. People, I mean, people were up in arms about like, an opener what are you doing like the starting pitchers but uh which can also get into a discussion of like how, what is the aesthetic of the game that we want how do we want it to to look like do we want the the pitcher versus pitcher uh the whole way through which is it's a different conversation but for now as the rule stands it's it's teams that are willing to break you know social norms of uh keep your keep your players where they should be as opposed to use the shift just apply that shift all the time, right? And and the yeah. teams that applied the shift were the teams that won, and now everybody's doing it. So uh, it's those kinds of things that like, why are we doing this? Well, it made sense when we didn't have the data, and now it's like, I'm I'm gonna let go of that. I'm not gonna worry about the group think. I'm gonna worry about what's our team gonna do to win. And yeah, yeah, no, yeah. You touched on a lot of uh, points there that I think. Um, <laughs> it, people are trying to understand of the game just because it's it's progressed so rapidly in just the last mm. eight years, I think. I think 2012 was really like the really big start of like, wow, we're, mm -hmm. we're going to implement every possible computation we can. Uh, but yeah, you touched yeah. on a lot of interesting points. Uh, leverage, for people that don't know, it's essentially like high leverage is essentially when the game is on the line. Like if there is a runner at second, one out, and their best hitter is up in the eighth inning, and it's a tie game or you're up by one, the game is on the line. Like, you need to put in your best possible option there. Um, mm -hmm. And I think teams are starting to get there. Uh, it's just there's still, like, that feeling, I think, for players, like, in their mind, it's like I need to close out the game because it gives me that extra rush. Um, so I think what teams are starting to do with the Brewers, as an example, is just accumulate a high number of – high quality relief pitchers to be able mm -hmm. to 
minim, minimize that risk across the board. Cause it's like, if they have somebody in the seventh inning going, that should be a closer on another team pitching in the ninth. That's just as effective if they can just mitigate that risk across the last three innings, which is how the Royals won the world series that year in uh, 2015, I think. You know, you make a good point though, is, is these teams that, that really just have so many high, high quality relievers. They can, they can put them where they need to. Um, and there's something really powerful about having a name for the thing that they're doing, right? The closer is closing the game. They're putting it to an end, but there's not a name for the person who comes in in the situation you said, right? Runners on, runners on base, the, the best, the heart of the lineup's coming up. We need our best relief pitcher to come in and keep this catastrophe from, from exploding, right? We could lose the game right now. This is really high leverage. Um, and there's not a term for the person who does that. There's, I think there used to be an old term, um, like the, the firefighter, the fire engine, the fire. Fireman. Fireman, that's what it was. There was a fireman, and that was like the, the old thing for the closer. And I wonder if like we could develop a stat or like the name fireman could take off again for those like really high pressure situations. Because then it says like, well, here's what you're doing for us. And we're going to recognize the fact that like, you're doing something that is vital for the team right now. It's going to come at a different time. It's going to look a little bit different, but if there's a way to like name that and like, or capture it in a stat, like people are going to be way more willing to, to do it one. And then two, like play, uh, players will be compensated for it too, right? Like closers get paid way more than other relievers, but only because they have the magic stat, the save. And that's because we can capture it, right? We have a word for it. Whereas like other, other relief pitchers don't get the big payday. Um, even though they're, they're getting through, you know, those, those hard innings the same. So, I, yes, I was just about to mention that point. Uh, you make a great point there. The, uh, relief pitchers want the closer role because they get those saves and as history shows and how simpletons think to be blunt, uh, the save is something they can put their hands around. So, they're going to get paid more because all saves are viewed equal when they're really not. If you are up by three and facing the six, seven, eight hitters, that is absolutely not the same thing as <laughs> being up by one facing the two, three, four hitters. Absolutely it's different situations, but they're treated the exact same way. And I think once people can develop stats for that, that's when people are more willing to be in different situations to be able to want those roles and then be fairly compensated for it. Um, like Dellen Batances, uh, he, uh, for the, um, for the Yankees, he, uh, he got in a big fight in arbitration because he didn't have any saves. <laughs> I remember this. Yeah. Even though you look at his stat line, right. And it's like, if you put that guy and he happened to be in the nine in it, then he would have had yeah. a, a pile of saves, but yeah. Um, uh, well, and thinking about just the players themselves in that competitive moment, right? They, they want to be recognized for being the person who is being the fireman, right? For being the person who is, you know, crushing that heart of the lineup and keeping the, keeping the game, you know, together for your team. Uh, there's, there's power in recognition, right? There's power in feeling like I'm the person who does that for us. Um, and it makes you that much more motivated to, to go out and do it. And, um, you know, I, 
I haven't, I don't remember hearing complaints from players about like, but there must've been about players who get like knocked out of the, the ninth inning role. And they're like, you know, we're, we're going to go by closer by committee or um, I can't think of examples, but I'm sure it's happened. Yeah, no, just one example from my Matt's knowledge. Uh, the Nationals traded for Jonathan Papelbon, and mm. he would only – he had a no-trade clause, and he would only agree to being traded if he would be guaranteed the closed role, <laughs> which uh, at the time didn't seem like the best idea because our closer we had, uh, Drew Storen, I think, he, he had mm -hmm. like 30 saves. He was just shutting the door. Um, but mm -hmm. But yeah, he just wanted the recognition of being the closer with that save statistic attached. He's probably thinking towards mm -hmm. towards his payday. Um, but I also understand you had another topic you wanted to hit on about batters reading pitches. Oh yeah, well this goes into this goes into uh, <laughs> kind of a deep dive uh, into what what is like happening i don't know if you've watched any of like the slow-mo videos of of batters taking pitches or batters like um batters uh trying to trying to hit the ball right like the high-end relievers rollis chapman the, the people who go more than 100 miles an hour right it's faster than you can blink uh and it's faster really than you can think about it right and so a question people sometimes ask is like how is it that batters even stand a chance how is it possible that they can even stand up there and get any kind of hit um and part of the answer is that they are reading the body language in the windup um so this is part of like what makes really good batters good is that they have really good vision and it makes really good pitchers good because their release point is identical for their different pitches so if you can disguise your body language more as a pitcher, it's going to be so much harder for the batters to understand what's happening. Um, but all this, uh, well, I'll pause there because I'm, I'm curious for your initial reaction to that. <laughs> no, I, I just read um, some article the other day talking about how, talking about batters being able to hit. And um, they tried uh, looking into it, doing like all these tests and skills with the, uh, one of your, I'm assuming one of your all-time favorite players, uh, Albert Pujols, and they said he... <laughs> Number two. On my, yeah. All right. Um, he sits at, in like the 97th percentile in terms of like hand-eye coordination for like the human mm -hmm. population. And they said it's either one of two reasons. One, he's just really good at hand-eye coordination, or two, he's really good at hand-eye coordination because he spends six hours a day training to hit and mm -hmm. using his hand coordination and it's yeah. one of the others that's that's exactly it and i don't know if you read um i just read an old book but a great one malcolm gladwell's outliers which is um the story of success and in there he cites like uh, a study that's become kind of famous the the ten thousand hour rule which is like ten thousand hours of deliberate practice like really trying to get better at something um, is what it takes to be really successful, which translates to about like 10 years of a 40 hour work week uh, of, of doing that, that specific skill. And so when you think about successful batters like Albert Pujols or um, Jose Altuve, I'm trying to think of who else has like a really high average, but uh, which is not the defining, that's so old school of me to think that that's the defining feature. But um, 
the the really good batters have spent a really long time in the batting cage reading a human's body language and trying to figure out what's going to happen next um because that's all they can do they can look for the pattern of the hand movement and then they're they're just guessing right they, i mean they're kind of guessing it's a very educated guess based on all those hours they've put in based on like the count and the situation and all that that practice understanding what's going on but there's actually other studies that show batting practice uh is not very helpful uh for batters like taking taking the cages before the game uh players some players actually say they don't want to do it because um it's not super helpful it's not the same as the real life situation taking 60 mile an hour softballs off a machine is like yeah, you can get your mechanics down, but it doesn't help you understand what the pitch is or catch up to a ball that's going, you know, 95 to 100. Um, and that's what you need to practice doing if you're going to be successful. So, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the, this is a random uh, connection I'm making, but the, uh, the movie uh, The Rookie with uh, I think mm. Dennis Quaid, like uh, he was a coach of a baseball team and he was like some 48 year old goal, 48 year old guy who happens to throw 98 miles an hour. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, he, th he started throwing these fastballs to his perpetually horrible team and then they can finally start hitting better. And that's really just because mm -hmm. they are practicing hitting fast pitching as yes. opposed to seeing mechanics, which is two yeah. very different things. Yes. Yeah. You no, know, they're completely different things. Right. And that's, that's part of the, you got to practice uh, what you're doing. Yeah, you got to practice the skill that you're going to use live. That's the best way to set yourself up for success. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Any uh, last thoughts on uh, those? Uh, jump about baseball history. Uh, well, the last thing I was thinking about is, um, uh, well, just a connection to how we're seeing so many young players be successful now. Whereas the, the old peak, uh, there's aging curves and there's like a peak for a player's career. And it used to be around like 26 to 28, but it keeps getting younger. You keep seeing these more successful younger players. Um, and one of the things that's helping that is uh, they're practicing younger, right? There's more year round baseball. People are playing in Florida and California, you know, all year round. But the other thing that's happening is um, a lot of the knowledge is being transferred electronically that used to take doing live. Um, so it used to be that like old players were pretty competitive with young players because they had that many more hours of deliberate practice. And even though, you know, they're older, their swing speed is not as quick as it was. Um, they, they are wiser and they kind of know what's going to come. And now that wisdom is coming at a younger age because there's video footage. There are, you know, entire teams of analysts that are noticing like, hey, on two one counts, you tend to swing for low and outside. So you got to watch low and outside. Pitchers are going to come at you that way. Um, and and pit players are able to better gain that wisdom sooner. And so that's another part of this uh, young player revolution that's kind of happening. Yeah, no, I think the young player thing that ha that's happening now is, it's kind of like a catch-22 because it's like everyone is loving the production they are putting into the game, but mm -hmm. people are so fixated on the younger players. No one's actually focusing on the major league game happening. What they are looking for is 
-hmm. Who's going to be like the next Mike Trout? Who's the next Francisco Lindor? They're fo they're so focused on like the prospect list. They're not that mm -hmm. uh, are kind of losing sight of what's really happening on the major league level. But. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and so, uh, a parting thought on uh, the that's this is something that those those um, mental skills coaches that are kind of taking over or being added into the league. Um, this is something that they would work on with with players. Um, and another thing that they work on with players is like habits of success. Because there, there are things you can do to make your more, yourself more successful. And there are things that will get in your way. Players will, apparently, uh, one of the things mental coaches like really try to work on with players is they'll, they'll take a, you know, they'll strike out. They'll be really mad at themselves. They'll run to the video room and watch that video of themselves failing, right? And in yeah. that moment, you're only upset. Like, you're upset with yourself. You're frustrated, disappointed, right? And so the lesson you're learning is watching yourself fail. And you're cementing, like, look at me failing. I'm a failure. I messed up that, right? That's not the lesson you want to learn from that. That's not how you're going to get better. And so what they're working with players to do is to remove that from the game. Really, you know, take a deep breath. Focus on your next step bat. Gather yourself. Give it some distance. Revisit it, you know, tonight, tomorrow morning when you're in the video room. And you've kind of cooled down and you can really more objectively look at what went wrong rather than in the heat of the moment, which just cements in your brain like, yeah, I totally screwed that up rather than actually learning from it. So that's uh, just another example of things mental skills coaches are kind of working on with players. Yeah, and I think that beautifully transitioned into uh, today in baseball history. So 16 years ago, May 18, 2004, Randy Johnson throws a perfect game against the Atlanta Braves at age 40. <laughs> so that kind of goes against what we were talking about in terms of being so focused on failure. Now, arguably the pinnacle of achievement and mm -hmm. being young to having success at an old age. So I guess, I, mm -hmm. do you think that's the pinnacle of achievement, throwing a perfect game? Like, it's a pinnacle of singular achievement. Is that, like, what you would say mm -hmm. right, for a baseball pitcher? Uh, yeah, I, it would seem that way. Other than, like, the Cy Young, which is, which is more a comparison of your peers and, you know, perfect games. Like, a perfect game versus a, a one hit or a one batter reached is um, yeah. almost – it's a matter of luck, too, right? Like, you, you go back and watch – highlights from any perfect game people kind of research and they find like there's almost always one you know seemingly miracle play right? just a completely improbable catch outfield or you know andrelton simmons is your shortstop kind of situation and it's like how on earth you know because it, it really is like a team thing but there is something to um the pitcher being like you think randy johnson 40 years old right like he just an absolute strikeout machine and strikeouts is like as much i mean it's it's execution but it's also uh outsmarting your your opponents right like that's that's what oh, yeah. it's gonna do that yeah i think uh also pairing a 98 mile an hour fastball with one of the game's elite sliders of all time probably helps but um <laughs> but uh yeah in 2004 he was pretty much dominant all the way through he uh, led the league in game started. He had a 
2.60 ERA over 245 innings. He had an ERA plus of 176. Yeah, so he led the league in game started, strikeouts, ERA plus, fielding independent pitching, whip, hits per nine. Um, but he did not win the Cy Young Award that year, but despite being the best pitcher that year, um, his wins above replacement was head and shoulders above everybody else. Um, yeah, he had an 8.4 wins above replacement, and the next closest was 7.2. Um, but, yeah, Roger Clemens won that year with a 5.4 wins above replacement. <laughs> and he led in one statistical category. <laughs> Can you guess what statistical category that was? Uh, losses. <laughs> Randy, Roger Clemens? No, he led in win percentage. <laughs> a win? Oh, that's that's – Oh, sorry, the one that Roger Clemens beat him in. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, the all-vital win stat is, you know. <laughs> yeah. And Thankfully fading just, from memory. Yeah, I think uh, Randy Johnson should have won that year. That should have been his fifth Cy Young in six years, which is crazy to think about. But that's just how far above the sport he was. <laughs> um but, yeah, so today in baseball history, May 18, 2004. Perfect game at age 40. So, uh, if we can get back on track, hopefully the internet stays up in our about. Um, so, I guess uh, just get more into the personal life of Kerry and his nostalgia around the game. So, did you play any baseball growing up? I did not really play any baseball growing up. Uh, I, I didn't really play a ton of sports. I mostly hung out with kids in the neighborhood and we rode our bikes around and wandered around in the forest that was our that was more of our weekends um but i did grow up in st louis which is a huge baseball town um it is just everybody lives and breathes baseball in st louis so it was pretty inescapable um had you know a lot of friends good close friends that i grew up watching the game with and that was really my first connection point to it yeah, everyone seems to say St. Louis is the heartbeat of baseball <laughs> and being right in the center of the country, too. Um, so you didn't play. So I guess you didn't have any memorable moments on the field. But what was uh, your peak interest in the sport? Like, when would you say that was? Like, is like are you, like, at the top of your interest now? Or is it, like, back when St. Louis Cardinals were winning all those titles? <laughs> uh it would be nice if that was it but no I, I would say it's probably right now it's um it's really something that I have committed to like it's a fun thing to learn more about and that's that's really um the, the mark of a good hobby is like you you just keep you can't get enough learning about that new thing and you you always get enjoyment from it so um I would probably say right now yeah so yeah like I think that's one of the more interesting uh things about baseball is it's you the time between is actually where the game is played like you can analyze the every pitch endlessly every result endlessly is this the first time it's ever happened is this the 374th time this has ever happened like there's so, so many stats in the game because the game is so individually based between pitcher and hitter which is far more unique and you can individually identify 
players' valuations as opposed to other sports. Um, I think hockey is starting to get there, but in terms of like basketball, football, like how much is like defense, like how can you really measure defense if the play isn't even on your side of the playing area? Like <laughs> how do you measure that? Um, and I think that that's just something that I think mm-hmm. sets the court apart. Uh, it's just the endless ability to analyze. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? You really love the sport. And I think where other people kind of lose that interest. That's just me. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's on you know, I, I think I think one of the big things that really made it uh, an enjoyable thing for me is, you know, when we were growing up in St. Louis, it was like every, you know, summer afternoons, that's what we would do. We would, you know, we would sit with the windows and doors open and we would have the TV on or we would be at the game, you know, under the sun or we would be. Uh, I would be camping and we would have it on the radio and we would just sit around the campfire in an FM radio and listen to the play-by-play of the game. And it was just, um, it's about sitting back and relaxing and enjoying, you know, just sitting by the campfire, listening to the game. Um, it's not about the fast pace, you know, quick what's going to happen next. It's the, it's those moments in between where I get to sit back in my camp chair and smell the fire and then I hear you know the next pitch fires off and it's a double down the line and it's like man this, oh this is so exciting like you you get to dip in and out and and have just uh, an experience I think that's why baseball grew so much in the time of radio was and this is a new thought I've never had this before but like <laughs> I'm trying to structure this thought in a coherent way but just because my brain hasn't developed like we talked about um <laughs> but <laughs> the game of baseball it's you don't need to be physically watching it to understand what's going on you can understand like all right i know where the fielders are going to be standing and i need and i know who is up what the count is because hopefully the radio broadcaster is just beautifully scripting this amazing and open uh idea of like what the game is and like how it's going and like the flow of it maybe telling a story in between pitches. Like it, it gets into like this awesome rhythm, which is unparalleled in other sports. Like for other sports, you need to be watching them to really understand what's going on. Can you imagine watching hockey mm-hmm. <laughs> or listening to hockey on the radio? No, it's, it's, you know, this person passes this person, this person passes this per- person, but baseball really has a continuous like pause, stop, play, pause, stop, play, pause, stop, play that lets you, have the in, image in your mind of what's happening. And it's so interesting because now that we're talking about it, it makes me think about the language of baseball and how we talk about the game. You can say runners in the corners, two out, you know, two, one count, you know, Pujols is up. Like, great. I have the whole image of what's happening. And I all yeah. I did was say a bunch of numbers, right? And you knew immediately yeah. what was happening in the game. Um, it's, yeah. No, that, that's like the difference between like those other three sports is football, basketball, hockey. In order to truly appreciate the sport, you need to watch the development and the anticipation of what's about to happen. So like when the quarterback snaps the ball, you're going to see the seam route wide receiver 
make a nice move on the uh, defender there and be open. You're like, throw it to him, throw it to him. You're not going to be able to see that on the radio. All you're going to see is Roethlisberger drops back to pass, and he hits a wide mm-hmm. open uh, whoever. Like, and, like, you're not going to be able to – it's not the same experience as it is in baseball where it's – this is so cool. I'm, I'm really happy we <laughs> made this connection. Anyway, but, like, in baseball, like, there's, like, a two-second time frame for things to actually happen where pitcher throws ball, batter swings, doesn't swing, the result happens. Like, mm-hmm. and I think – yeah, like the game is so interesting that it can be beautifully scripted on the radio, and that's why it grew so much. And maybe that's why it's kind of going down a little bit because mm. there's just other entertainment. Yeah, I I think so, and I I think it's something that uh, it, it worries me a little bit about the sport, but it also makes me um, think about the people who, who love baseball for what it is. And they're, they're very passionate about having the fact that we can sit back and spend, you know, gosh, I, I remember so many games where it would just be me and my friends and, you know, we'd get the, the bleacher seat tickets and it would be, you know, a day, a Thursday afternoon or Thursday day game. And we took that day off in the summer from our summer jobs and we just went to the ballpark and we sat for three hours and just hung out, right? That was like, that's what it was about. And, and uh, it, that, that doesn't really happen in football or in basketball, right? You're not going to hang out with your friends and uh, just talk about life or talk about the game uh, beyond the game that's happening in front of you. And that's kind of what's fun is, you know, uh, it's fun to scoreboard watch while you're at the stadium. It's fun to, um, yeah, there, there's a lot you can do that. Um, yeah. Hmm. There's a lot to be said about the aesthetic of sitting at a baseball game. But uh, to, to talking about, you know, baseball on the radio and it's, it's huge growth in that way. Um, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen like maps of fandom, um, and who, who is a fan of what team, um, but the Cardinals have this huge swath of the middle of the country before there was that kind of expansion, um, and as a as sort of a case example of that, my grandfather, who grew up in rural Nebraska, um, used to go down to the shop and listen to the radio broadcast of the Cardinals, because that was the radio broadcast that came in. That was the one that they got uh, down at the bar. So he would go to the bar to listen to the Cardinals broadcast. And my, actually, this was my great-grandfather. My grandmother remembers him coming home and like, being so excited when the Cardinals won the World Series. This is like, you know, uh, this is the 40s and 50s. This would have been happening. Um, yeah. And they went yeah. to a lot of World Series back um, when they had Stan the Man. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, probably because they had Stan the Man. But, um, yeah, no, I think that's really cool. I, oh, God. It is kind of cool, like a breakthrough moment of sorts. Um it all makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's an interesting, unheralded part of baseball history that uh, I think uh, could get a lot more attention of, of how, how the sport grew. Um, but yeah, um, what were we talking about? Oh, uh, 
being at a ball field and like the aesthetic that adds. Um, Cause I think there is a lot to say about the sights and sounds of being at a ball field and being with someone else to just really sit back and analyze and just talk through it. Cause there are, and I think that would make, that's what makes it good about being um, it's not good television. I think we can both agree on that, but <laughs> I think being there, being able to like, cause there's not many points of action where it's like, you can talk about like, wow, he's throwing 96 miles an hour. The last one crew was 98. Maybe there's something there. Like, hey, why do you take a little bit off? Oh, maybe it's like a different pitch. Maybe he wanted to throw it a little bit slower. Like, and, and like, so you can just sit there and just kind of talk about it and take it all in while, and then maybe that moment of action happens and the conversation stops and then you can talk about something that now you can talk about that. <laughs> um, I love going to ball games. I think it's one of my favorite things about, being in Pittsburgh because the tickets are so cheap. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, any uh, any thoughts on that, like, just being at a ball game? Uh, just that it's, for me, it's a really great memory, and it's uh, one of the things I, I love most about the game is, is that aspect. And um, when we think about the future of baseball, and kind of where it's going. I, I think that's one of the things that will help the game continue to last is um, it really is like, you know, I think one of the, one of the big uh, demographics for baseball fandom is families going together, right? It's, it's really a family activity that you can go and, okay. you know, you can help take care of the kid, you know, you can, you know, wipe the hot dog off their face and then uh, you don't miss <laughs> Right? You don't miss the, the play because there's a break in the action for you to, you know, wipe the, wipe the ketchup off and then you can go back to what's going on. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's, it's something that I hope baseball really makes a concerted effort to do is make it really um, affordable for families because the way ticket prices are going, it's, you know, for a family of, you know, four or for a family of four, it's like, it's like a hundred dollars, you know, if you, if you drive and park and get tickets for everybody and get, you know, any kind of food, like you're well over a hundred dollars, which is a pretty expensive family outing. And um, yeah, I, I just hope there are things that can be done to, to make it more, a bit more accessible for a wider audience. Yeah. I think that's another catch 22 that comes into the game is um, all these players are getting paid all these exorbitant amount of money and that's awesome for them. They can support their families for like the whole rest of their lives. But now mm -hmm. the owners have to up the prices of everything to be able to afford these players. <laughs> and that's where I they think got a lot the sport is bought. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, I'm on the side of the players for sure. Um, I just think that's why the prices are going up because of the increased um, just costs overall mm -hmm. um, across the board. But, but, yeah, so I don't even know. We are so far off the rails. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, <laughs> uh, let's get back to the questions I have. Uh, who got you into the sport? <laughs> Uh, like which player or which person or you can take it any way you want, man. This is sometimes baseball. <laughs> Who got me into it? Um, it was, uh, family friends of ours, the Eplins. Um, they were the ones 
best friend growing up, Matt, you know, they were the ones who always had the game on TV. Like if, if the game was on, it was on their TV at their house, you know, no matter what was going on. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, we, we would dip in and out of the game while doing other stuff or we would sit and watch the game for a whole afternoon. Um, that's really who, who, uh, you know, on a person connection, uh, my friend Matt and the Eplin family, they, they were the ones, but um, on a, on a bigger scale, it was, uh, I was, I was born in 91. So I watched, you know, Mark McGuire was the man in 1998. Like it was, it, it was all we talked about in first grade was the, the home run chase, uh, him and Sammy Sosa. Um, I remember those Mark McGuire seasons, uh, then to tack immediately after Mark McGuire to have Albert Poole. Uh, you know, become, you know, he was, it's just like, uh, he, he's the player. Um. Yeah. I almost thought of doing a, a Cardinals moment, uh, May 18, 1998, uh, Martin McGuire hit three home runs, <laughs> three, mm -hmm. two run home, um, as part of his steroid fulfilled prophecy of breaking Rodney Marish's home run record. Um, but yeah, I know I, I saw they're coming out with like a new documentary about it. Um, on ESPN. Um, apparently there's like some behind the scenes footage that nobody's ever seen. Um, I don't know. I, I'm sure I'll watch it. But. <laughs> well, with, with lack of live sports, we may as well remember, you know, the great moments. So. Yeah. And, um, gosh, the, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah. Like I, that also like saved the sport in a way. Um, just because of, like the fallout of like the 1995 strike with no baseball, um, mm -hmm. but yeah. All right. Uh, getting back on it. Uh, so I asked you to rank your top five favorite players. Do you have them? Mm -hmm. I have them in the other room, but I should be able to remember them pretty well. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. We'll start with, we'll start with number five. Number five is, uh, Matt Carpenter. Uh, mostly because he's the kind of guy, um, Matt Carpenter, he's the kind of guy who is, uh, undersold as a team player. He's the kind of guy when he was at his peak, um, really pro provides a lot of value to the team, um, but is not necessarily, you know, he's not at the top of any statistical category, but he, I mean, maybe walks, he was at the top of at one point, maybe doubles at another point, but just a solid, you know, defender all-around player, team contributor. You know, he had a, a series of years where he was like, you know, three to five, hovering on the, you know, four or five win range and just, um, yeah. yeah. I, I, and I love his beard and I love his eyebrows. So just. <laughs> Let's look at this. Um, in 2013, he led the league in runs, hits, and doubles, and he finished fourth in MVP balloting that year. So. Mm -hmm. That was his age 27 season. I mean, yeah, no, he's a – his player valuations have been pretty good. He has – he's worth – he's been worth eight wins across the board. Uh, he's a good yeah. player. He's a, he's a great player. But, I mean, when you think of, like, all-star representatives, when you think of, like, who are the stars of the Cardinals, like, maybe he's on other people's list. But I think outsiders don't really know about him. Cardinals fans certainly know, like, Matt Carpenter – 
brings a lot to the team, but uh, he doesn't get a lot of attention from the league or baseball at large. Um, but that's all right. I think the, uh, my, bur um, my burning memory of Matt Carpenter is uh, when Todd Helton uh, pulled the hidden ball trick on him <laughs> in Colorado. <laughs> Not but uh, <laughs> Not as great as mine. Um, yeah. Uh -oh. <laughs> no. Uh, let's see. number four. I went with Joey Votto. Um, similar. Joey Votto, pretty great. He's. Uh, I picked him because he's a great interview. If you ever listen to any of the post game interviews with Joey Votto, he's like really insightful, uh, but also like kind of sees beyond the game. He's like, I know it's a game, right? At the end of the day, it's a game. He said it's a game, uh, and yet. He has the skill and uh, he treats, he takes it seriously, but he's also aware like, you know, I play a game for a living and that's, that's all weird. Um, I, I love his, his commentary on, uh, on all that. No. Yeah. I, uh, I just listened to this recent interview he did uh, on the athletic on the podcast from, with Joe Posnanski and Michael Shore, the co-creator of the office parks and rec oh. good place. Um, he played Moe's. Um, in the yeah. office. Um, but, so yeah, those two have, have been doing a podcast for like the last 10, 12 years or something like that. But um, they had Joey Votto on. And um, they were talking, Joey Votto is like a student of the game. Like, he's a major historian of the game. You know how you hear about mm -hmm. that. So, all his time reading. And Joe Posnanski did this really awesome thing called the Top 100, ranking the Top 112 players of all time. And so, Joey Votto, being the historian of the game, he actually reached out and wanted to give his insights on why he thought Posnanski was wrong, which I thought was just hilarious. Um, yeah. And they were also talking about how Joey Votto, he actually goes by Joseph <laughs> um, to, like, his mom. But yeah, Michael Shore <laughs> was uh, – I think it's probably better that you go by Joey to everyone else because you would not have made it as a baseball player. Because <laughs> Joseph Votto is not as fun as to say as Joey Votto. <laughs> but <laughs> no, Joey Votto. Um, but on the topic of fun, that is my uh, as my number three player is uh, Shohei, um, oh, who hasn't Shohei. who has who hasn't had the chance to prove it yet. But I love just his his story and how he came to the United States to play baseball. And just for love of the game, that he was one of the top competitors in Japan, you know, all-star athlete, and he could have cashed in on a big contract uh, by waiting until he's 25 years old to come to the United States. He didn't want to wait that long. He was like, I want to start uh, competing against the top players in the world, and uh, I don't care if I have to make the minimum salary uh, to come to the United States to do it. And, uh, you know, so just... That Joey, that Shohei Otani, like, doesn't care about making the money. He wants to be the best at at two impossible things. And talking about our pattern recognition thing and, and deliberate practice, this is part of you know it's so it's next to impossible that he's a switch hitter. It's it's unbelievable that he's doing what he's doing. Um, that he can be so skilled at both aspects of the game. Um, yeah. And it just it his, his genuine like love for the game and desire to compete and like want to be. Uh, among the best players on the planet, it's like I, I just love that. Um, so that's Shohei Otani, number three. He, 
you just stole my heart because he is probably my favorite player. <laughs> um, I've been following him since like 2016. Like this guy was the number one overall draft pick to the Japanese baseball league out of high school, um, not out of college. Um, he was just killing it over there. He was playing in the Tokyo Dome, hitting home runs into the roof. They literally just lost the baseball. Um, but, yeah, then he comes over here. And um, <laughs> at his introductory press conference, he's like, uh, why did you pick number 17? He's like, well, he plays for the Angels. And um, he's like, well, I wanted number 27, but somebody else had it. So I settled on 17. Like, the guy's just hilarious. Um, <laughs> um, he has so much fun with it. And then he goes out and he pitches six perfect innings in his second career starts on top of that same week hitting home runs against Corey Kluber, Justin Verlander. <laughs> like, the dude is going crazy. I love it. And, oh, my gosh, it's the absolute best. I mm -hmm. love Shohei. I'm so happy I was able to go to a Mariners uh, Angels game. This is where I got this awesome shirt. Um, yeah. but unfortunately he was hurt, so he wasn't playing, but it doesn't matter. I still got to watch Mike Trout play and he had, he had two, two home runs. He made two amazing catches. Mike Trout is. Sorry. <laughs> uh, my phone's running out of battery, but you love show of time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he, he's really love as a player. Uh, he's pretty fantastic. Um, and uh, after Otani, number two, uh, Albert Pujols, we've already given some time to, but the machine, just incredible. <laughs> Absolutely relentless, year after year. I mean, you look back at his, uh, it's it's more fun to look at on baseball reference, his, his statistical record, because you oh. see all that. It's everywhere just where he was the leader in so many categories and um, just, yeah, I, it was, it was, it, it, as, as a fan watching him, it was just like, I know something good is going to happen today. No matter how bad the rest of this game goes, I'm going to watch Albert Pujols do well, like whatever it is he's going to do, like he's going to do well at it. And, and it was like, you can always count on to, to bring some offense and, and uh, make the team better. And also, he's just a jokester. I, I love that he's like, he's uh, have you ever seen any clips of like him and Adrian Beltre uh, in the same game messing around at first? It's so fun. Um, yeah, no, I just pulled up his baseball reference page. Uh, 2009, um, that looks like the dream season. He led the league in runs with 124. He had 45 doubles. 45. He also had 47 home runs. Uh, <laughs> one triple. Um, I guess he was saving his speed for his 14 stolen bases. Or no, no. 16 stolen bases that year. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's his thing. He's a smart player. He's a smart base runner. He knows when the pitcher's sleeping on him. That's that's how he, he uh, swiped those 16. But anyway, keep going. Yeah, he's <laughs> 115 walks, only struck out 64 times. Like, what? Anyway, uh, on base 44% of the time, a slugging percentage of 658 for an OPS of 1.101. <laughs> he was 89% better than the rest of the league, according to his OPS plus stat. 
He got intentionally walked 44 times. That led the league, too. Like, the dude went insane. <sighs> oh, my God. Yeah. Just crazy. He's first ballot Hall of Famer, no doubt about it. Yeah. Absolutely. I, uh, it's Yeah, he puts up video game numbers, and he didn't have to do steroids to do it, like uh, Mr. Bonds over there. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he might uh, – <laughs> If Pujols wasn't so dang hurt over the last seven years, he might be approaching that home run record. He might, yeah. Uh, it's a, uh, it's uh, <laughs> Cardinals fans have mixed feelings about him leaving. Uh, ultimately, it worked out okay. Uh, him signing yeah. in LA. But you haven't so. been back to World Series, but you don't have to pull. Neither has. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah, so number one. Number one, uh, I figured, you know, the obvious choice, number 27, is uh, too easy. Too easy to put, even in my top five. I was like, you know, he's going to get enough attention, Mr. Mike Trout. So I gave number one to the, when I thought best player, the person who popped in my head was uh, Yadier Molina, Yadier Molina. Um, another, another, like, people knew... He people knew him as like a really great defensive catcher. People knew him as like a really hard worker. People like if you go to his like offensive uh, stat record, you can point out the season he decided to try to get better at offense uh, because then he was just the best offensive catcher in the league. Um, and he's the kind of player where it's like wherever he chooses to give his attention, he's going to be phenomenal at that thing. Um, and uh, I, I, I love that, like, when the catcher defensive metrics, like um, being able to steal pitches from outside the zone, you know, catcher framing, yeah. when those things started to come in and, and they measuring them, he was immediately off the charts. Um, you know, he, he was doing all the things before we had ways to measure those things. Um, and I, yeah. I love that about him, so. Yeah, I think it looks to be 2000. 2008, he stopped trying. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On offense, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he had 304 that year. On base, 349. Um, he won the gold mm -hmm. glove. But, yeah, no, just his hits went from 97 the previous year to 135. <laughs> In almost <laughs> the same number played. <laughs> um, but that's that's funny. So wait, yeah. yeah, run. We got five as. Oh, five. Uh, runs in the top. Uh, Matt Carpenter, Joey Votto, Shohei Otani, Otani, Pujols, Molina, Gary Molina. Mm -hmm. All right, I will put that up tomorrow. Um, but so. Any last thoughts before I give the fun story I found? I'm excited to hear the fun story. This has been All great. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I end the show every week, or whenever I do it, uh, with a fun story I find or that I know. Um, this one I knew. Um, so, and then I did a little bit more digging on it. So, September 27th, 2009, uh, Mike Blowers, uh, he was an amateur star 
in the Seattle area. Really just was amazing. Everybody loved him. He spent three different stints with the Mariners in his career and landed a broadcasting gig with the team after his retirement. Um, so what they do before every game is they do like what's called like a pick to click um, before every mm-hmm. game, essentially uh, picking what like the player of the game, who he thinks he needs to play the game. And uh, he starts out by saying, well, I think it's pretty obvious. Um, I'm selecting Matt Tui Asasopo. And he had a very peculiar prediction for the game. He, um, he predicted he will hit a home run, which would be Tui Asasopo's first career home run as a fringe minor league prospect. Um, he added some strangers by saying it would be Tui Asasopo's second at bat of the game to left center field in the second deck of Toronto stadium. So if you don't know Toronto, it's basically a circle with like the, uh, the levels basically stacked on top of each other. So hitting into the second deck, isn't that too outlandish of an idea. Um, and lastly, it will be on a three, one count and he'll hit it off a ball. So just to rerun his prediction to Yasa Sopo, who has zero career home runs, <laughs> he will hit a home run, first career home run. It will be on his second at-bat to the second deck of left center field. It will be on a 3-1 count off a fastball. So what follows is the stuff of legend. So the legendary Dave Niehaus is on the call, and he essentially transported back to the role of a child as the fourth pitch of his second at-bat comes inside to make it a 3-1 count. He is laughing. He is, says, I've never been more excited for a 3-1 pitch in my life. <laughs> so, Tui Topo fulfills prophecy, legend, <laughs> like Flowers' uh, sense of spiritual godlike ability that he has of prediction. By hitting that 3-1 pitch off the fastball to left center field, just missing the second deck. <laughs> Dave Niehaus, if you haven't seen it, I will post it but on the Instagram page. But if you haven't seen it, go watch. It is hilarious to listen to Dave Niehaus shouting, I see the light! <laughs> 33rd year of broadcasting. He's seen it all, just not that. Um, so SB Nation, they ran the odds of all of those occurrences they ran the SB Nation ran the odds of all those occurrences happening at the same time as one in three thousand seven hundred and three, or zero point zero two seven percent. So Blower's confident, <laughs> confident called that shot for a guy hitting eighth in a lineup out of nine spots who had never hit a home run, a fringe big league prospect, while including all of the necessary details. If that isn't a fun baseball only story. I don't know what is so measurable and so statistically driven and, and measurable only baseball. Could you have someone call so specifically this line of like, it's going to be the three, one count. It's going to be this, this specific instance, this specific interaction between these two players uh, that this is going to happen. Like it, it is exactly as you said, only a baseball story. Yeah. I, I, I'm so glad I looked deeper into that um, just because that I know I've heard the story before, but just looking back, it's hilarious. It's so pure that Dave Niehaus is like what he said. Like, oh, I just love mm-hmm. it. <laughs> but 
so yeah, that's uh, all I have. Thank you for being on here for an hour and 15. <laughs> I know yeah. you're busy and I got dinner. Um, no, fantastic. I, I don't know how long these typically go, but I, I appreciate that uh, we got to do this. This was a lot of fun.